Yeah. This is Facebook Live. Right? This is Facebook Live. <clears throat> this is the real, the real deal. Will you be fielding questions? Yes, I'm going to field questions. Good. Hello, everybody. Hello. Happy Wednesday. Um, okay, so today, so Father Brian is on vacation. So today we have Trevor with us, who is currently in his second to last second year, to last year yeah. of seminary. He's very brilliant. Very, he knows a lot. He's like an he's like an FB in training, but pretty much you might be FB. You might be he might be better than FB. No, I'm just kidding. But um, anyway, so we're really excited to have him. He has a, prepared a special topic. He actually has notes. He's gonna follow. It's gonna be great. Um, and there is a handout. Our printer we couldn't get it to print, so I'm gonna send it out to everyone. I got it right before. So you can, but you don't need the handout to understand the talk. So I'll send that out in an email. And then for you on Facebook, I'll be on Facebook like I always am. Um, and we'll take a break about 40 minutes in. So here's Trevor. He's the best. And we're so excited to have you. Thanks, Jeff. Yes. Yes. All right, everyone. Um, just I'll, I'll introduce myself and then we'll pray to kind of start the um the evening, but some of you might recognize me just because I was here over the summer. I don't know if any of you um, remember me um, during my parish assignment this summer, but I was here from May until um, mid-August, um, just kind of following FB around like a little puppy, trying to learn stuff about the parish and um, kind of get into his head about, how, well, how do you deal with different things within the parish? And obviously one of his um, great uh, gifts is teaching. Um, he at least he has a great love for it, right? Um, he he devotes a lot of time um, to formation, and I think you guys are really lucky to have him. Um, but he he was very influential for me, um, and it was a great gift to be uh, here at the parish with him. Unfortunately, I didn't get to know very many people from the parish, so I got to know the staff members a little bit, um, but didn't really get to know many of the parishioners. But um, again, my name is Trevor. I grew up in Denver, um, up in Thornton. So not too far away, um, born and raised. Uh, so my, my path is a little bit strange and I won't bore you with much of it, but I started seminary 12 years ago um, and took some detours along the way, basically um, decided at one point, okay, I'm way too young to make this decision. I gotta take some time off. So I went to college, worked for um, some years in college administration. And so I've just kind of been all over the, all over the map a little bit. Uh, but three years ago, I heard the Lord calling me back to seminary. And um, just always keep that in mind. The, the Lord talks to us. He does, he does speak very clearly. Um, and if we're devoting ourselves, our lives to prayer, he will speak to you. Um, and so that's, uh, that's just something that is really beautiful, that we have a God who um, communicates with us. And we're going to go a little bit into that tonight, but um, the topic of the evening is um, kind of a, stu a, a study of Christian anthropology. Uh, anthropology meaning the study of man, and even more particularly, Catholic psychology. Um, and what I mean by that is the study of the human soul. And so this is going to be some heavy lifting. Um, this is going to be some, some hard distinctions. I'm not going to give you fluff. I'm not going to give you just stuff that is super easy. I, we're going to have to work through some of this stuff. So I really want to uh, promise you that I will try to do my best to make sure that I'm explaining 
the terms as clearly as I possibly can. But on the other side of that contract, please stop me if you don't understand. There's no shame in asking questions, and that's super helpful to me to sort of gauge the temperature. If you have a, if you have a question, somebody else has the same question, guaranteed, right? So um, just to get that out of the way, there, there are no stupid questions, ask, ask away. I don't mind being interrupted. I like the inter interaction. Um, so, but before that, let's pray. Um, let's speak to the Lord um, and ask him to be here with us. Um, unfortunately, I set, sent the, the handouts to Stephanie super late, um, and I wanted to pray um, Psalm 8. Um, so the Psalms are some of the most beautiful works in all of Scripture. Um, they're the Lord's way of teaching us how to pray in a very particular way. Um, so I want to start with this, and I want you to listen very carefully uh, as I read through this, uh, this Psalm, because it's actually bringing up a lot of the questions that I want to raise in your minds this evening. And this is the Lord's, these are the Lord's own words helping us to do that. So let's begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I will read this very slowly. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord Jesus, we come before you tonight, giving you praise and thanksgiving for the glory that you reveal to us in created world, but mostly, Lord, we ask for the grace tonight, we ask for your spirit to be able to peer into the mystery of ourselves, of the very most fundamental gift that you have given to us, the gift of our own human nature, the gift of our very identity. And Lord, with a special gratitude to you for taking on this human nature as you became man, we pray for the grace always to follow in the way that you taught us as Christian disciples, help us to peer into these mysteries, open our minds, open our hearts to question, to ask the, the questions that are difficult, give us the humility to learn from one another, and help us always to give glory to your name. Father, we just ask your blessing tonight. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I wanted to start again. This is Psalm 8, um, and it's a beautiful reflection on, uh, I mean, it sort of goes down to that, that one question. Um, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? What is it about man that God did that he actually likes us, right? Because he does like us. He likes us a lot. He loves us, right? We hear that all the time. But it's more particular than that. He loves you. He likes you even right? He likes every single one of you. He likes the things about you. He likes the things that are particular to you, 
but he also likes everything that he's given to us in common as well. And that's what we're going to focus in on a little bit. So again, psychology. The definition of the word, um, it's Greek, right? So I have to be like Father Brian and start with some Greek. Um, psyche. Uh, it's a, it, we've heard that, that word before. It's in English, right? It usually means kind of the psychological aspects, emotions, things that are going through our heads at any given time. And then... Logos. Who's heard that word before? I imagine Father Brian has said that a few times, right? Psyche, logos. So the study or the understanding of the soul, right? As human beings, we're a body and soul composite. Um, and so tonight, I'm going to focus in a little bit more on the spiritual side of us, the, um, the, the stuff that you don't necessarily see, but we certainly experience in ourselves, something that's a little bit deeper um, than the body. Now, I just want to ask some of you guys, because again, I, I do super well when I know what you're thinking a little bit more. Um, why do we care about what psychology is in the first place? Why would I, as a Catholic seminarian, I'm not studying psychology, why would I even be interested in this question? Do you, do you guys have any an idea about why I would want to be answering some of these questions about what is man in the first place? What is psychology? Any, any first thoughts? That's fine. Yeah. You're probably a lot of parishioners would be kind of asking those questions. Yeah. Yeah. As as I mean, certainly as I get farther and farther into ministry, I encounter more and more people who sort of don't understand the workings of their own hearts, right? And so, if I meet somebody who's just extremely broken in kind of pastoral counseling or something like that, and they don't know what to do with the emotions or even why they're having those emotions. It's helpful when the church gives us something to speak into, when an entire tradition gives, gives us something to speak into. Another thing, uh, and this is very close to my uh, path to the priesthood, is I'm going to deal with death a lot. Um, and the questions, the end-of-life questions, come on really hard. I just lost my grandmother four weeks ago. And before she, the coroner um, came and took away her, her body, I had four hours with my family just sitting there with her after she had passed away. And those questions come in hard, and they will rock your world if you've experienced that. I'm sure some of you have, right? Like, where, where did this person go? This, this body sitting on the couch, that's not my grandmother. And that can, that can just rock your world. We want answers for that. And, and natural reason can give us answers for that. So can theology. Uh, so can divine revelation, scripture, and what the church has taught over the centuries. There, there are answers to these sorts of things, but we want, we, want the, we want to raise those questions tonight. Another thing is that, honestly, um, I hope I'm not offending anyone in the room. I don't know if there are any psychologists in the room. That would be kind of hilarious for me to be lecturing a psychologist about this. Um, I think there are a lot of bad psychologists out there, and not in the sense that they're ill-willed, um, that they mean to be harming people, but simply that they've been sort of educated in a false understanding of what the human person is. And um, I mean, there's a, there's a particular instance of this in my life where um, there was kind of a, a Catholic celebrity um, last year who um, she just completely abandoned the faith and she wrote a very public statement about why she was doing this. And sort of at the gist, I mean, the, the gist of, of what she was saying is that um, she was wounded 
and kind of abused in her upbringing, particularly around sexuality and just the understanding of what um, her, her sex life was even for. But she blamed the Catholic Church for sort of deforming her um, in her, her, her kind of um, emotional attitudes and her psyche and all these things. And she, she's, she blamed those sorts of things and she started going to, um, she started looking into kind of pop psychology kind of things and they just get, it gets a lot of things wrong um, about the human person, what we're for. There's a lot of confusion out there around um, gender stuff, right? There's, there's a lot of um, just very deep questions about why am I a man? or why are you a woman? All of these different things. We don't know how to answer these questions, and we're certainly not giving those answers to our, our kids. Um, we're raising a lot of questions and not, then not giving them the tools to answer those questions. So there's a lot of faulty anthropology kind of going around in our culture, and it's kind of destroying people's faith in some, in some ways. And so if we want to bolster ourselves in our own understanding of who we're created to be, why God loves us in that, Granted that we have wounds and we are in many ways very broken, we have to understand what the church even fundamentally says about who we are. If, is that making sense? Um, any, any comments or questions about that? Great. Um, yeah, so the other, sorry, just one more thing, and this is maybe for you who are already um, baptized Catholics and are just trying to go deeper with your faith. One thing that can happen to us along the, the spiritual path, and this will be my last comment before we kind of jump in um, heavy duty into the, the content, um, is there can be a tendency, and maybe you've already seen this in, in, a, in the parish community, of what I might call a hyper-spiritualism. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, this desire for Catholics to be saints, right? We want to be holy. We want to be like Christ. We want to be working miracles. We want to be doing all this stuff. And a lot of times the way that we can go wrong about that sort of thing is to think, okay, then I'm just going to focus on my spiritual life. And we let all the other aspects of our person, our physical um, well-being, our psychological well-being, we kind of just leave those aside and they just kind of get weaker and weaker and weaker. We're not doing ourselves any favors by just focusing exclusively on the, the spiritual life. Because again, we're a body-soul composite. And there's a tendency in, I think, all religions, kind of, uh, I think this is present in, for instance, like Buddhism, where we kind of say, the body is bad, the spirit is good. Good, bad, kind of dualistic kind of, kind of thing, kind of like the light side of the force, dark side of the force, right? Um, that's not true. What the Catholic Church has taught and has always taught, what divine revelation has always shown us, is that the body is fundamentally good. It's a gift to us. But it is a lot of work to integrate that with our psychological um, powers as well. It's a lot of work. Um, I've been in seminary for six years. A lot of that is psychological work of just understanding, like, why do I have some of my, the particular tendencies that I have? Why do I react against this person when they say this kind of thing? Well, it's because of how I was raised, and it was because of this particular wound that uh, this particular person gave to me on this particular day, right? It's going through a lot of those things. But we have, to, we have to come to terms with some of those things at a certain point. And it's hard work. So here's what we're going to start with. We're going to kind of go through different um, 
different parts of the soul. Um, again, how I'm approaching this tonight is not from the standpoint of divine revelation. I'm going to go into this from a, a little bit more of a philosophical basis. Father Brian is great with leading you through the scriptures and um, giving you a lot of the theology of things. I can do that as well, but I think this is going to be super helpful for you. Um, so I'm going to start with just the question, and again, I'm not focusing so much on what the Bible says, which is very helpful and good, but just from your own life experience, we're going to try to get into what the soul is. Does anybody have an idea, want to take a leap of courage and try to take a, a stab at what the soul is? What are the kinds of things that we would say have a soul? Anybody have any ideas? I don't care if it's wrong. Throw something out there. Humans. Humans? We would say that humans have a soul. For darn sure. What else would we say has a soul? Animals. Who agrees with that? Who agrees that animals have souls? Good. What else, would we say anything else has a soul? Would we say- Angels don't have souls, right? Correct. We don't believe that they have We don't believe that angels have souls. It's a great, great distinction there. Oh, someone said those that are able, anybody who's able to comprehend God. Yep, I'm gonna lump that in with humans and maybe say human persons. And just repeat that too. Oh, sure. So somebody online said, anyone who has the capacity to know God. Is that right? Yeah. Great. Thank you. So I'm going to add that in and say, human persons. Persons have souls. Would we, uh, I'm going to go back to my, my question. Do we think that plants have souls? No. Does anybody want to say that they do? Are you talking generally or? Mm -hmm. Just generally. Very generally. Oh. Yeah. I'm actually going to go in and say, absolutely, plants have souls. They have a very completely different kind of soul than we do. And this is where we're going to start making some distinctions. There are different kinds of souls, according to the Catholic intellectual tradition. I hope the people online can actually see this. So I'm going to divide this into three different kinds of souls. The vegetative soul, the animal soul, and the rational soul. And why I'm doing this is because we basically define the soul as the principle of life, the interior principle of life. So anything that's alive has a soul. This is, this is how the, the Catholic Church tends to think about it. Do plants have life? How do we know? What's, what's a defining characteristic of life that would apply to a plant? They grow. They grow. What's another thing? They metabolize. They metabolize. Exactly. We might say they nourish themselves, right? They have, they have the aspect of nourishing themselves. So plants grow. They nourish themselves. They what? Die. They die, right? There's, a, there's an obvious distinction between a living plant and a dead plant. What's another thing that they do? They reproduce. They reproduce. Right? And we might say that those are, are three 
um, three signs of what it means to have life, right? They grow, they nourish themselves, and they reproduce. Do human beings do this? Yeah, right? Absolutely we do. Now, so there's, there's relations between all of these things, right? Every soul has something in common with other souls. We can call them all souls, though. So going from the vegetative to the animal, what things do we see in animals that might build upon these three things? What do animals do that plants don't do? Yeah, right? Have you ever seen a, a dog that's mad because he just stole a bone or something like that? Or a cat, like cats are kind of perpetually mad in my experience, I don't know. <laughs> kind of like cats, but they kind of don't. They're kind of scary, right? So they show emotion, right? They, and what, what do we even mean by that? Well, they have something more interior in them, right? You would never talk about a plant being mad, right? It doesn't have that depth of reality in it. It doesn't have that kind of interiority. Animals do. So what, what is it about animals? I want to go a little bit deeper than that even. What about animals allows them even to have emotions? They have instinct. They have instinct. That's also true. Yeah, so emotions of some kind. We don't know exactly what that looks like. Instinct. What else? So plants grow, but do they move? No. They don't, have, they don't have that kind of interior principle of movement, of moving themselves, of locomotion, we might say. Local motion, right? They don't move themselves. They don't have that kind, that, that kind of thing in them. Why does an animal even need to move? Yeah. It, it, ha it, it sees things outside. It knows there, there are things outside that it needs to bring into itself. And it needs to move to get those things, right? So the way that it goes about growth is it needs to move to get it. First, it has to perceive that that thing is even out there, right? So it has to, a lion has to see a gazelle, right? And it has to know by instinct, whoever said instinct, right, that that, good, that is good for me, that I actually need that to live. So do my offspring. They also need that to live, right? So there's, in, there's emotion, there's instinct. And all of that's based on sense knowledge. They smell something, they see something, they hear something. And that, that sort of activates in them the latent powers that God created them with to know how to survive. Right? Do we have all of these things as well? Do we have instincts? Yeah. Right? So like when you touch the burner, you pull it back. You don't, you don't have to, I mean, that's a very phys physiological kind of thing, but you just, your, your body knows exactly what to do in that, in that case. If you see somebody who has kind of a mean look on their face, like, kind of like Father Brian, like, if he's looking at you, if he's staring at you, do you have to think, I should be afraid? No, you just get afraid. If somebody's looking at you with a kind of murderous look on their face, you get afraid. You know what that means. Right? So we have these kinds of reactions. Right? So we are related to the vegetative soul. We have a vegetative soul somewhere in us. We have an animal soul in us as well. Again, that comes back to the fact that we have bodies. We can't get away from that, so don't ever try. A lot of people try. 
a lot of people, again, are, are in that hyper-spiritualist camp where they're trying to kind of escape the body completely. That's not going to work. That, this is in our nature. What about rational animals is different. What do we add to this mix, right? Because we have all of these things that the other kinds of souls have. What do we have that's, that goes beyond? We know right from wrong. Yeah, we know right and wrong. We have reason. What, what do you mean by, by the fact that we have reason? What, what's the hallmark of reason? Yeah, in fact, we have a driving, sort of insane desire to know things. Everything about us is hardwired to know the world outside of us. And not just for the sake of consuming it, of, of bringing it into ourselves so that we can, you know, feed the, feed the offspring or something like that. We just like to look at mountains. We like to look at waterfalls. We like to hear the ocean. We want to bring that stuff into us. We have a sort of infinite capacity to bring that stuff into ourselves. This goes back to uh, the psalm that I read to you. I really encourage you guys, when you go home, read Psalm 8. Maybe meditate on it the, the next few days. Because there's something really important going on. He says, the psalmist says it at one point after he's made these questions, like, God, why do you care about man? He, he makes this comment, you made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet. Our knowledge, our ability to know things, to understand things, is how we rule the world, is how we govern the world. Man is at the pinnacle of creation. It's the high, we're the high point. Mankind is the high point of all of creation. And this is something that you'll get into with Father Brian when you go into Genesis and the creation story and everything. But our ability, to, um, our ability to know is what makes us completely different than the animals. Now, you might say, I, I can hear the objections in your heads. I know what you're thinking. I have this clairvoyant uh, knowledge. Well, animals know things, right? My dog knows me. My dog sees my face. My dog sees me smile. Sorry, I'm a, go I'm a dog guy, as you can tell. My dog sees me smile and, and reacts to that, right? Well, this is, the, this is how the church thinks of that. Is your dog, have you ever kind of walked into your apartment and found your dog, like, unexpectedly and found your dog painting a picture? I haven't, right? The fact that we make art, we have a driving desire to go and produce something after we've seen some kind of beauty, that's something that an animal doesn't have. And that's not, that's not saying that animals are worthless. They're simply, they're simply lower manifestations of, what, of who God is. They're manifestations of God. Animals are. But we are higher manifestations of God. The fact that God can know, as I said, he not only loves every single one of you, he likes you, he knows you intimately. Here's another psalm for you if you want to write this down. Psalm 139. Some of you might already know it, but the first line is, Lord, you have probed me and you have known me. You have known the innermost parts of my heart, right? God actually does know us. And so we, we represent some, something of that in the fact that we have a rational soul. Now we're going to kind of move into some, some more distinctions, but before I do that, any questions? We're, we're moving fast and this is a lot of very technical stuff. Yes, one question. Question from online? Yeah. 
That's a great question. Um, yeah, so can you explain the difference between the soul and the spirit? When we say spirit, we generally mean something that is not physical. So we have a part of our being that is distinct from our bodies, right? And so we would say that our soul is a spiritual reality. Our soul is a spiritual kind of thing. It's not material. It's related to our material being, but it's not exactly the same thing. So I, I, that's, that's probably the best answer I can get for now for where we are, is that um, a spirit is something that's immaterial. So here's, this is going back to the point that Stephanie made. Do we say that angels have a soul? No, actually we don't. But we do say that they are spirits. They're pure spirits. So they don't have a body. They're pure spirits, which means, and so we're kind of making this, this chain, plants, animals, man, angels are above us, which means that they're pure intellect. It means they're pure spirits. They have, they have reason in a, in a better way, in a more perfect way than we do, um, but they don't have bodies. So I hope that kind of helps with the distinction between a spirit and a soul. We have a spiritual component to us that we call our souls, but we are not pure spirits, if that makes sense. Yeah? Cool. Any other questions? Yes? Um, so, dogs don't go to heaven, yeah? The question was, dogs don't go to heaven. Um, so, well, I, I asked them a follow-up. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, we, I mean... I can say a lot of things about that, but generally, no, they don't. And, and I can go into the distinction between our souls as Im immortal and animal souls as mortal. Yeah, but like, I would never think an animal ever had souls because they don't go to heaven, so it doesn't feel like to me, you know, they can't really touch That's super good. Thank you. So we're going to talk about two distinctions also between souls. So, we say that human beings have immortal souls. We say that animals have material or mortal souls, which means that they can, they can pass away. And that's, that's what the Catholic Church generally teaches about animals, is that when they die, they actually stop existing completely. Same with plants, right? They're, they're, we, don't, we don't believe in reincarnation as Catholics or as Christians, right? We believe that God created each particular thing, but with the, in the case of things with mortal or material souls, when their body can't survive anymore, the soul also disintegrates. It, it's, it's not there anymore. And that's just the nature of being an animal. It's not created for eternity. It's created for this world. It's created for us. I mean, I, again, I experienced this with, with my dog. Right? The fact that my dog seems to love me so much and gives me so much joy and happiness, it, it does kind of, in a certain way, exist for me. It also exists for God, but it exists for me. And that's part of the responsibility that we have as masters of this world, as ruler of this world. God, God put us in charge of this world, right? But animals were created for this world exclusively, not for the next. We are created for the next world. Now, I break children's hearts when I tell them that in catechism class, right? And they think that I'm the Grinch and Ebenezer Scrooge. Um, and so a way that some of my uh, priest friends get around that is, 
When you get to heaven, you will have everything you need to make you happy. Now, if, that, if you think that includes your dog, okay. That will be present in heaven if you think that, if that actually is necessary to make you happy. But we will be looking upon God, and we won't need the, the, the material creations in the same way that we need them here. Is that, is that, is that helpful, kind of explaining it? It's, it's hard for us because we get really attached to things in this world. But animals, their souls, we do believe that they kind of, they, they stop existing. Whereas man is created for eternity. We stop, we don't stop existing. So that was kind of the, the difficulty of losing my grandmother um, last month is, what is death? Do we want to, do we want to take a stab at what death is? What, it, what does it mean when something dies? It has to do with what we've been talking about. It has to do with the soul, right? What, but what does that mean? What does it mean when something dies? Any brave souls want to take a stab? Like the soul leaves the body. Yeah. So we've got, again, we've got two, two principles of our existence. We've got the physical pr principle, the material thing that we can see, and we've got the spiritual aspect. We've got the soul. And they're together when we're alive. When, uh, and we believe that, that that starts at conception, that there's material. When the egg is fertilized, it receives a soul. And that soul is rational. It is created directly by God. And then it has the interior principle of life, right? At the end of life, when the, when the body is just too old or because of disease is too weak to continue on and the soul can't sort of keep it together there's a there's a separation but because our souls were created with a re with reason with an intellect we're not supposed to just stop existing again we're made for eternity and so our souls continue on and that's what everybody has this sense when they lose a loved one right it's like okay the body is not grandma it's not. And I have this sense that grandma still exists because there was too much good stuff about her to just simply stop existing. Now, you can, you, there, are, there are counter arguments to that. That's kind of just a visceral instinct that we have. Uh, it might be cultural as well. There are counter arguments to that, sure. But I think a lot of us just kind of have that innate sense that this human person that's standing before me, there's too much going on there to just stop stop existing when, when death comes. And so everything that we're doing tonight in terms of philosophy, this is good for us because it is actually preparing us for the fact that we will die, right? And yes, we, we believe in the resurrection, but our souls will depart from our body at some point. That's what we believe as Christians. And that's an evil thing. That's not a good thing. The fact that, that death exists for us, it's not a good thing. And we'll, we will not do this, but Father Brian will talk to you about death and the fall, um, about the Christian understanding of why death is in the world. God did not create us for death. That's, that's, a, that's an effect of something that we did as human beings. So you guys will have to struggle, struggle through that with Father Brian a little bit more. Um, any other questions before we move on? I've heard that in the Catholic tradition, you're not supposed to spread your ashes mm -hmm. or 
I, I know it was controversial even fourteen years ago, but I'm wondering what your reaction sure. is to now. But why would that the Catholic Church is not a good thing? Great. So the question is. Um, what does the Catholic Church about, think about cremation in general, but particularly about the practice of spreading ashes after someone has died? So it was just simply never the, the Christian tradition up until relatively recently, 50 years or so, um, to burn bodies. That was a pagan practice, a pre-Christian pagan practice. So when, when Christ came and his disciples started spreading the gospel to all parts of the world, they knew that he had promised the resurrection. And so burying their dead was a particular way of kind of saying, we don't believe that, that this all ends right here. We believe that these, these brothers and sisters of ours that have, have died, that they will actually be raised up again. So they, they buried them as a sign they will come back to life again. We don't want to destroy the remains. It was symbolic to them of the resurrection. So burial actually became a sign of our belief in the resurrection. So when cremation um, became a little bit more prevalent in our culture, for practical reasons or, or any number of things, I don't even, I, I don't particularly know why cremation is, is more popular now, um, the Catholic Church was simply worried, are you doing that because you don't believe in the resurrection? Like, is, will this actually be a sign to you? Like, oh, I don't actually know that I believe in the resurrection. Or will the, does the burial help you to imagine better that like, oh, you're, you have this physical place in the ground and that's where you'll rise when Jesus comes again, if that makes sense. Um, so there is just a kind of fear of saying, um, of just of losing that tradition and that connection with how we had always thought about burial. Um, and kind of going back to something that was associated with pagan practices of burning the corpse and whatnot. Um, the, and I think, I think I could just push that a little bit farther with the, um, spreading, the spreading the cremains, is there's something, um, for a lot of people, that could just simply become um, a symbol of this person kind of came from immaterial, lifeless earth and now kind of going back to Mother Earth and it's kind of a little bit more of a pantheistic kind of like, well, everything is kind of divine and everything is part of us and we're part of the whole cosmos and now we're just kind of putting Betty back to, you know, where she came from. And it's, it's sort of like the Christian understanding is, no, Grandma was meant for God, right? And, and we're, we're keeping those remains as a sign of the hope of the resurrection. I hope that's helpful. I think I mean, there are better answers, but I, I hope that's just a little bit of the historical answer. Yeah. Can you explain the resurrection? Yes. Um, we got we got a long way to go to be able to, to understand that. But basically, one of the primary results of sin, I'm going to give you one one minute version of this. The primary result of sin was death and corruption. Through Adam and Eve's sin, Death and corruption entered the world. We were meant to be immortal. We were not meant to die. We were meant to have souls that could keep us, nourish us unto eternal life, right? Now we, now we have the, the experience of death where we kind of are falling apart. It's kind of like entropy in the human life, right? We start off really strong. We have a lot of, a lot of momentum, and then we just start kind of going down in like the rest of our life. I'm kind of at this point now. I'm over 30 now, so like I'm just starting to feel a little bit more of the joints disintegrating and all these things, right? We're kind of falling apart at a certain point, right? There are things about us that are not integrated with each other. And that goes to such an extent that we, we die. 
would come apart. When, because that was a primary uh, effect of the fall, Jesus came not only so that we would, um, he, came to, he came to basically save every aspect of our person. So we lose our physical body in death. We don't lose our soul. Our soul continues on. But we do lose that aspect of our person, of our, our body. Jesus came to redeem everything. So he not only came to save our souls and bring our souls to heaven, he actually wants us complete as persons, as human beings, in heaven with him. So he wants us soul and body with him in heaven. And so when he conquers death um, by undergoing death, and you guys will get into a lot of this with Father Brian, I'm sure. When he conquers death, he redeems the very, the very physical universe that we're made out of. He brings it all back, back up to an even higher state. And he re we, we believe that he'll redeem all of the cosmos, the entire creation, not just our souls. Again, that kind of falls into the, the dualist, hyper-spiritual thing of, oh, it's just our souls that matter. No, it's every bit about us that matters. That's a 10-cent that's a version of, of what you guys will get into about the resurrection, um, but it's a start. It's a, it's a start to understanding that God comes to conquer death, which we brought on ourselves. Any other questions before we want to move on? Can you repeat the question? Yeah. Yeah. God is again. Remember what I said about okay. There, you've never come home to your apartment to find your uh, your cat painting a picture, right? Um, we are God's works of art. Intellectual beings love to create images of the things that they see. And this is the thing about God, is God looks at himself, right? He's a trinity of persons. You'll get, you'll get there. Father Brian asked me to teach about the trinity tonight. I said, huh, no, thank you. <laughs> I don't think I'm quite ready for that. Thank you very much. Uh, you guys will get there, though. You, you have to talk about the trinity because there are three persons in God. There's a community within God. We are... We, like them, are made to be in communion with one another, right? There's a community of persons in God. So there are persons within the divine essence, within one God. They're looking at each other from all eternity and saying, you are good, you are perfect. They see one another and they create. So then God creates us as images of that. He creates us as his work of art. He creates us, in other words, to look like him. And so if, if we were just human beings that died and then ended completely, we wouldn't look very much like God. God doesn't die. There's no principle of death in God. There's no reason why God could die. That's not the sort of thing that he is. He's too perfect to die. He, there's no corruption in him. There's no growing old. There's no getting tired there's that's that's not something that we would ever say of god it's just not the kind of thing that he is so the fact that we have an aspect of ourselves that looks like god in in that particular perfection that doesn't die that's really good he creates us to look like him 
And so we say in, in the fall with Adam and Eve, at some point in human history, we did something that made us not look like him as much. And Jesus Christ comes into the world, taking on our human nature, to restore our ability to actually look like him again. I know that's, 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 that's hard stuff. But if you think of it as an, of God as an artist, he made us to image his goodness, to reflect it, to, to show it forth in ways that were not previously possible. Same thing about the angels, but that's, that's kind of the thing about an angel. An angel also doesn't die. Um, an angel isn't the kind of thing that dies. It's pure spirit. It doesn't have a body to, to separate from, right? So angels... They, they represent his, his goodness, his eternity in a very particular way as well. Man, mankind, um, we image it in terms of having a body, but also having an immortal soul. Animals image it in having a body alone, so certain goods throughout life, and then they lose that. There's not, there's not the same kind of permanence. So if God just created us as animals, well, he could have done that, but he wanted to show forth his glory in a particular way. So... Do we need to take a break? Let's take a five-minute break. Five minutes. Cool. Bathroom is right through this hallway, and then there's water right here. Good job, Trevor. Thanks, Steph. I need one more second here. 
are you able to see? When you step back, okay, cool. I will. I will do my best. If not, yell at me, please, because I. I think I'm forgetting to kind of step back so that everyone can see. Are we all ready to start? Again? Okay, great. So I have a question. Yes, a question. Are you revealing that that the soul is the marriage of the spirit and the body? Again, you're saying that an angel is on the spirit, mm -hmm. so it has no soul. That's a great question. So the, the question was for those watching online, is the soul the marriage of the spirit and the body? I would say that's not how I would say it. Um, I would actually say, though, that the human person is that marriage between the soul and the body. So then what's the difference between a soul and a spirit? So the, the, different, so the soul, uh, a sp spirit, is kind of a more general term. And we understand, we understand that as human beings in, in a kind of negative way. When we say spirit, we mean, mean not material. We mean something that's not tied to the physical reality, the physical creation like we are. So we have a spiritual aspect. We also mean something that doesn't die, right? So we have kind of negative ways of talking about that. A spirit is something that's not material. A spirit is something that doesn't die. Um, a positive way to say it is a spirit is something that's rational, that's, that has an intellect, that knows things outside of itself in an intellectual way, um, in a way that, again, kind of wants to reproduce those things and communicate those things. Um, so that's a very general kind of term. Whereas the soul is something, the soul is, is particularly bound to a physical reality. The soul is the animating principle, the life-giving principle of a physical thing. So we wouldn't say that this, this podium has a soul because it doesn't, it doesn't have any kind of interior principle of life, of growth, of nutrition, of motion. It just is. It's a composite of wood, right? It doesn't have anything that's sort of making it from the inside out do stuff. But we don't say we don't necessarily say that an angel has has a soul because, in a certain sense, an angel just simply is a soul. But so we only understand soul in relation as a distinction with a, a sort of physical material thing, so body-soul. Um, we only understand soul as a, in relation to that physical thing. We call it, in, in Aristotelian terms, Aristotle kind of developed this theory, it's called hylomorphism. It's a matter form. That you have matter, and then you have something that comes, a spiritual reality, an immaterial principle that comes on, of, on it and makes it what it is. That's very philosophical, but I, I don't, is that kind of getting at your question? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a, great, it's a great, great line of reasoning. So spirit is a little bit more general. We generally kind of know that in a negative kind of way. Soul is something that we always understand in terms of a body. Body and soul always go, go together. A physical thing and, a, and a, um, a, a more spiritual reality, a less physical thing. That makes sense. Great. Any other questions before we start? Cool. Hope I'm doing okay. Keep, stay with me. I'm trying to give you give give you as best I can. Um, so I wanted to kind of draw. This is incomplete, but something of a chart of the different powers of the human soul. So for those of you online, if you can't necessarily read this, intellect, will. It's kind of a package deal up here. There's a there's a big 
demarcation because this is the rational soul. This is where we're getting into the realm of human person. Intellect and will are up here at the top. That's our, those are our highest faculties. Then you've got memory. Memory's a little bit, um, it's, a, it's a, a more spiritual reality, right? You can't, you can't locate memories per se inside the human person. We experience memories, they're, they're in us, they're very real, right? They tell us about the world, they tell us about our lives and about our experience. You can't quite locate them. You can locate physical manifestations, neurons, and etc., about where we store our memories, where those, those immaterial memories kind of connect with our physical brains. But that's a spiritual faculty, the fact that we can actually remember things that have happened to us, that's kind of a spiritual thing. But that's not something that we don't share with animals. Animals also have a memory to some degree. We, we don't know what, what their memory looks like, but we can, you can tell that a, a dog can remember something, right? Your dog doesn't have to meet you every time you come through the door. Imagination. We have an imagination. We have a, we have, so the fact that I'm looking out at this room and seeing a lot of people and a lot of faces and a lot of emotional reactions to things, I'm experiencing that as one thing. That's my imagination at work. It's, it's putting together all of these things into one sort of sensory image of how I experience the world. That's, that's what I mean by the imagination. That's one, of our, that's one of our perfections as human beings, the fact that we can take all of that in, and it's not overwhelming to us. We just experience it all. We kind of I looked out at the room, and I kind of experienced something, right? And it makes sense to me. That's the imagination. I'm going to skip down here because what I was just saying, it's, this is all based on sense knowledge. So there's a philosophical principle. If you're a philosopher, you want to remember this. This is very important. Nothing is ever known by the intellect. Nothing is in the intellect. Remember how I said, as human beings, we have this driving desire to know, to take everything into ourselves, to contemplate it, to have it within us in a kind of intellectual way. Well, nothing is in us unless it's first in the senses. I mean that you never have an idea of something unless it's first been sensed in some way. This is a philosophical principle. Again, this is just what philosophers have observed about human beings for millennia, and this is just how they enunciate it. That we are, and this is why we need our bodies, because if we were just spirits, if we were just souls, we would have no way, the kind of thing that we are, we would have no way to bring knowledge into us. We, we sense things. Every kind of knowledge begins with some kind of sensory knowledge. What are the five senses? We learned this in kindergarten, right? So what's kind of the primary one that we think of? Sight, right? Sight, smell, taste, touch. Exactly. Those are the five senses, right? They, they are the way of bringing the outside world into me. It's how I communicate with the outside world. It's how I bring it into me in such a way that my imagination can kind of put it together and I understand what's going on outside of me. Is that making sense? Kind of, so we ha that's, that's the fundamental thing of an animal, right? Is that they have sense knowledge, right? When I said before, um, an animal has instincts, it knows how to nourish itself, and that's based on the fact that it can sense what's outside of itself and knows how to bring something into itself. Senses, that's kind of the, the foundation. Now, passions and instincts are something that I kind of want to go into because I think this is really helpful, again, for us understanding ourselves. Um, 
and how to grow in the spiritual life, it, a lot of it really has to do with our passions. Um, when I say passions, we kind of have um, some, I guess, linguistic baggage with that. I'm not talking about a passionate kiss, right? I'm not talking about something that's sort of romantic or something like that. I'm talking about emotions, generally. When I get a sensory experience, I have a reaction to that. And it's just, it's, it's, it's like that. I don't necessarily control it, right? Um, that is much of our life, is, is ha sort of undergoing these passions, having these exterior things act upon us. Um, and then we have to figure out sort of what to do with them. So what we call, let's see here, I'm going to try to make this as clear as possible. But it's very technical, so I apologize. Try to stay with me and, and, again, ask questions if something's not making sense to you. But we have sense knowledge. And so when we bring, when we bring a, um, a sensory stimulus into ourselves, it causes, like I was just saying, a reaction of some kind. And what that's appealing to inside of us is what we call an appetite. So this is, this is true of literally any sensory input, but certainly more obvious with some things. What's going to happen if Stephanie goes into the kitchen and throws in a batch of chocolate chip cookies? Well, everybody's going to start zoning out and start thinking about Stephanie's cookies and not listening to Trevor's fascinating talk, right? It's because what, what's happening? You're getting sensory inputs. This is how you're designed. You're, you're meant to pick up on the fact there's something really good over there, right? This is how we're designed. We're, we're meant to know what's going on outside of ourselves. But then we have, we have a relationship with that thing outside of ourselves, right? It's not just that I know, oh, Stephanie's making cookies. It's like, I want that. I want that cookie, right? I, that I, it's, it's a good for me. I perceive it as a good. That's based on an appetite. There's something good about that cookie that I want to bring into myself. That's kind of the nourishment thing, right? That happens with stimuli, with exterior stimuli. This is part of us just being animals, right? We have an animal side to us, right? We have an animal aspect to us. These are based on, uh, that's, what, that's what's going on between the sense knowledge and the appetites. The classical understanding of the human person is that we have two different kinds of appetites. And I, I hope we can get to why this is important. We have the, I'm not going to use the super hard technical terms. Um, the technical term for this one is concupiscible. I'm not going to make anybody say that. We have a, an appetite that's basically about enjoyment. We have another appetite that's basically about fighting. And here's what I mean. So in the case of, that I just brought up, Steph goes into the kitchen, starts making those um, famous chocolate chip cookies of hers. You smell it, you desire it. That's just that's a very simple thing. You you perceive it, and you perceive it as something that's good, that's something that's desirable for you. So there's an attraction there. You want to go get it. That's that's a that's a, an aspect of our appetites that's just simply ordered towards enjoyment. Now, what if her husband, the big bad meanie that he is, stands in your way when you're going to get that cookie? 
and says, those are my wife's cookies. <laughs> Therefore, they're mine. And you're not going to get them. What's going to happen? Well, that's, that smell is so tantalizing, you're going to want to fight Patrick Deveni. You're going to want to take him down so that you can get to those cookies, right? So, there's, so this, is what, this is what I'm getting at. There are certain emotions over here that are just sort of, they're simpler. It's just I perceive something and I have a simple reaction to it. Um, Sorry, I know this is going to be really hard for some of you to see. Um, this is if you can make it through this, you can make it through any, anything. Um, Try to stay with me because I think this is going to be so helpful for you guys in, in going just going through life. When you smell the cookie baking, you have a desire for it. It's a good that you know is a good for you, but it's not it's absent. You want it. But that's based on the fact that you love something. You have a desire for something, you want to bring it in to yourself. Now what's What's a, a different example of this? What would be an example of hatred and aversion? That would be if Trevor went into the kitchen and started trying to make some chocolate chip cookies, burned the heck out of them, and now it's stinking up the entire kitchen and causing a fire and something like that. Would you want to go eat those cookies? Charred, burned, disgusting, because Trevor can't cook anyhow? No, you would have an aversion for that. That's based on saying, no, that's not good for me. You would, not, you would not have any desire. You would have an aversion. Like, actually get that out of my sensory perception. I don't want to smell those charred cookies anymore. If, however, Steph went back into the kitchen, pulled out her cookies, and you went and ate one, you would just simply have joy in the fact that you're, you're, that you're enjoying it, that it's, it's the possession of a, of a good thing, and you just simply have joy. You have it, it's good, right? You're putting the cookie in your mouth, you're tasting it, it's nutritious in some sense, right? Uh, it's good for the soul, right? There's simple joy. There's a sadness if you couldn't get to those cookies because there's, a, there's an unfulfilled good. You have a desire for it, it kind of transitions into a sadness if you can't get to it. So again, what I'm trying to get at is you have certain desires for what's good for you in your soul, and this is just simply instinctual, this is natural. You have the desires that are about simple enjoyment, and then as soon as there's a kind of obstacle to some of those things, you have a different kind of um, reaction. If Patrick's standing in the way of your getting those cookies, you're gonna get angry, and you're gonna wanna fight him, right? You're gonna wanna get through that guy, that solid 300 pounds of muscle, and get to those cookies, right? That's gonna be a, a, a reaction of anger. Or you're gonna be a little bit afraid because he 
you've heard that he throws a mean punch, right? And he might be able to break my jaw, and then I wouldn't be able to munch on my cookie, right? You'd have some kind of fear of that. Again, this is, this is when this kind of appetite is when there's an obstacle to us obtaining what we think is good for us. There's a fear there. An example of courage is when you're afraid, you're kind of, you know that Patrick could possibly break your jaw when you're trying to go for those cookies, but you, you get bold, you get really, really lively, and you say, I'm gonna go for it anyhow, and you throw a flying 360 roundhouse kick to the face and knock him out. That's an act of courage, right? You just overcome the difficulty. But that's, that's something that kind of wells, has to well up inside of us, right? We don't just do something without having that kind of emotional impetus for it. That has to kind of come from inside. And that's based on how strong the desire is for the good that we're pursuing. Despair would be probably my reaction. Like, looking at Patrick, like, no, I can't, I can't do that. I'm just going to give up and not go for the cookie. That would just add to my little stomach anyhow, you know? I'm just going to give up on, the, on that, that whole desire for, for the cookie. Hope would be the opposite thing of, I know that there's, there's an obstacle in the way of the cookies, but I, I hope, I look for a way to actually get around that obstacle. So, Adam, you go and make a diversion, and then I'm going to sneak around through the, the window and get the cookies, right? That's based on a hope of getting it versus an obstacle. Is this making any sense to you guys? I'm not explaining it as best as well as some people can. My point being that there are two different kinds of appetites. One's just based on simple enjoyment. We have a sense perception. We either desire it or we don't, we don't like it. We either like it or we don't like it. And that can kind of filter down into various types of other emotional reactions. Um, desire, aversion, joy, or sadness. Then based on what just the simple things that we desire, if there's an obstacle in our way to attaining those things that we desire, we have either a hope or a despair of that. And a hope can gain, can go into a courage. Also, it can go into an anger. Or we can have a despair of being able to, to get to that good that we desire. And that can go into a kind of fear of, of the obstacle that, we, that we're overcoming. Um, any questions about this that I can sort of clarify? This is hard stuff. Anything? So, this is kind of just an interesting thing. Who's heard about the four temperaments? Anybody else? Kind of the four temperaments? So it's, um, Steph, can you remind us of what the four temperaments are? Do you know? Melancholic. Yeah. Melancholic. Choleric or yeah. choleric, yeah. Is it melancholic, choleric? I don't know about Yep, sanguine, sanguine and phlegmatic, yeah. So those four temperaments, I'm not going to go too much into this because only one person sort of knows what these are, but the four temperaments this is kind of a classical way of categorizing people. Um, the choleric person is the one who tends towards anger. The melancholic person is the one who tends towards sadness. The phlegmatic person is the one who tends towards despair. And the sanguine person is the one who tends towards a kind of hope or joy. It's just kind of an interesting way of, um, of understanding yourself. Like, this is actually, in the spiritual life, a very good question to ask yourself. What is kind of my default uh, setting? Am I, a more, am I a person that kind of um, tends towards 
joy in almost every situation? Am I an internal optimist? Or am I a person that kind of tends towards despair? It's just helpful for us to know these things about ourselves. Um, what I want to get at, though, is these things like hope, despair, sadness, anger, hatred, Throwing those up on the board. When I when I talk about these things in, in, the, in this context, are those moral acts? If I throw this marker at your face right now and you get angry, is that a moral act that you're getting angry? Is that like a good or a bad action? Is God gonna judge you based on the fact of whether or not you get angry? might. I think this is unclear in a lot of our minds. So I, I really do want to want to bring this up. If if I'm in a car accident because the person was behind me was texting on their cell phone and rear-ended me and I get out of the car and I'm significantly angry, is that a sin? We've got one one person saying no, why not? Why do you think that's not a sin? It depends on how much of that action you show, like how much anger, how much hatred. Then you sure. Can so you're making a distinction between the actual emotion mm -hmm. and then what you do with it. Mm -hmm. That's good. What do, do we have any other ideas? Is that a sin for me to be angry? Yeah? Yeah. Why do you think so? Nothing good will come from it. Because nothing good? Okay. That's good. Um, Yep. So we have over here, showing emotion is a very natural thing. And then the idea, yeah, you need to, to temper your emotion. But I think the distinction that we made, the emotion itself and then what you do with it is extremely important. Um, because I tend to, to, to agree that showing emotion is just simply a natural thing. And I think this is something that a lot of Catholics struggle with. And I don't want you guys to have to go through this struggle is we're guilted for having an emotional reaction. We're guilted for having an emotional life. We're guilted for things that are 100% natural. God gave us emotions. We're not getting away from that. And in fact, he gave us emotions to help us to accomplish certain things that are good for us. Now, the whole kitchen situation with Steph's cookies, that's, that's a silly example. What about... The example of, this is going to get a, probably a lot of varied reactions, honestly, but what about the example of a father who is, well, let's start with an easier example, a father who is taking his kids on a camping trip, they're walking through the woods, they come across a bear. And suddenly, he has an, on, an influx of emotions. He's probably going to fear a ton of, or feel a ton of fear. He's probably going to feel a little bit of courage, boldness, daring, right? He's going to uh, feel anger that that bear, you know, maybe wants to attack his kids. Maybe we're, you're between that mom and, and her cub or something like that. He's going to feel all of those reactions. And in fact, biologically and 
even spiritually, just in God's, in God's good um, providence, he's going to, in order to defend himself from that uh, bear, he's going to have to rely on courage and anger as passions. He has to rely on those things. So the fact that he's feeling those emotions is completely good and right. Should he also be feeling fear? Heck yeah, because that thing could tear him apart, right? So I'm, all I'm saying is that we were given emotions to tell us things about the world, to accurately indicate something that was going on. The fact is, and this is kind of going back to my, my original question of why is this stuff important, that a lot of us are really emotionally broken human beings because of abuse that we've weathered, whether it's from our family, whether it's from relationships that we've had, very often, whether or not it's because we've been told, excuse me, told as kids that we weren't supposed to feel emotion at all, those things break us. They disintegrate us. And what I said before is the whole, one of the, the major tasks of the Christian life is to pull all of these things together. You know how I had that diagram of intellect, will, memory, imagination, passions and instincts, sense, knowledge? The intellect is at the top. The intellect is, is the, supposed to be the, the, path, or the, the um, power in us that's able to bring all of those things together and order ourselves towards our, our ultimate good, which is God, right? Which is virtue. But if we, have, if we have emotions that are just sort of out of control and constantly pulling us in different ways, that's not helpful to us. And that's the state that we find ourselves in most of the time. So in principle, emotions are good and they're helpful to us. They are supposed to help us achieve the various things, goals, that, tasks that we have in front of us every single day. They're meant to help us with that. But because we're very broken, we come into the world really broken, right? That's what we call original sin. We have these emotions that are sort of pulling us in every different direction, and we find it hard to behave in a rational sort of way, right? So in itself, anger is a really good thing. Practically, it's probably not going to help to get angry at that person who just rear-ended you. So you need an intellect that's able to, to order and command those lower passions, those lower faculties, and say, okay, You've made your point, anger. Now I'm in control. This is the intellect talking as benevolent ruler of the soul, right? We hope. Um, now I'm in control, and we're going to go talk to this person who was distracted. And yes, I have cause for anger, but we're going to get this worked out. I'm going to get my insurance money, blah, 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 right? We have to order our passions, and that's a lifelong process, right? We all know that. We all know that our, our emotions are chaotic at any given point, right? Yeah. So is that how you explain when you just go back to the Catholic guilt thing, which is in the gospel about lust, mm -hmm. which says as soon as you have lust, you've already sinned. Yeah. Because we say, well, I had anger and I didn't sin because I didn't take an action yeah. to hit the other person. Yeah, so the question is, is about, for, just for the people on, online, um, it's basically pointing back to Matthew 5 when Jesus says, um, if you are lusting for, he's talking to the men in the crowd, if you're lusting after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart, right? You've experienced a kind of passion. Now, we have to be careful there because experiencing lust, experiencing sexual desire, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to firmly hold to this, that's not evil. 
that's not immoral. It's what, right, that's how we're made. We're made for sexual union. That we're, we're created for that. However, when it goes into, when it, when it becomes excessive, and when we give into it, when it's not in accord with our reason, right? I'm lusting over this woman. She's married to my best friend. There's, there's a higher reason that says, no, you need to restrain that passion. And then if I say, no, nah, I'm not going to listen to that, that ordinance of reason that I have in my intellect, I'm going to dismiss that and just go after the lust. Or I'm just going to sit there and think about that, you know, fantasize about that relationship or something like that. That's where the sin comes in. So the sin is becomes disordered. Yes. Okay. Once it's disordered, once it's out of line with the higher faculty of, of, of the intellect, of reason, once it becomes, again, excessive or deficient, that's when we say, okay, the emotion has now verged into a bad area. It's now driving me onto something. But the, mo the emotion itself is not bad. It's actually pointing to the fact that that is a potential sexual partner, right? That's, that's just how we're designed. And unfortunately, that, that aspect of ourselves, and you guys will get into this with the creation story, that is very, a very disjointed part of our souls. We are very subject to lust in all kinds of different ways that are, that are not helpful to us as human beings. But again, the, the simple inclination in a certain sense, or in a certain direction, is not necessarily sinful. But it could be, and it always is, a sign of a deeper wound. When, we're, when, we're, when somebody is acting out sexually in a sexually um, disordered or unhelpful way, it's because they've been hurt in some, in some regard. It's, going, it's always going down to a deeper wound, right? We act out sexually, when, and I mean by, by that, when we act badly, when we're, when we're doing immoral things sexually, it's always because there's some hurt that we're trying to fill. There's some void that we're trying to fill. And very often, Catholic psychologists trace that back to trauma, childhood wounds, relational wounds. We're, and we're seeing this in a huge way in our culture right now. We're very, re we're relationally broken. Sexuality is for the, the union of persons. And that union is just being violated in millions of ways right now on social media. I'm, I'm astonished with the things I'm, I'm learning kids are experiencing on social media. That's disintegrating them. And they're, that's going to wound them very deeply. And they're going to act out of that sexually somehow. Because their, their natural capacity for relationship is being destroyed by a lot of these experiences that they're being exposed to. Get off my soapbox on that one. Uh, that's... that's that's Trevor. Uh, that's that's how I think about it. But I think that is very much based on uh, the gospel and what Jesus is is saying to us. Um, how are we doing on time? Sorry. We're good. Okay. Okay. Another question. What happens with the case of Alzheimer's? Okay. Is that a disconnection from the soul? Oh, interesting. Um, so the question was, what, what about Alzheimer's? Is that, um, is that a disconnect from the soul? Um, it's a great question because when we, when we think about illness of any kind, we, we say, okay, even, honestly, even mental illness, what we call mental illness, it's not exactly a problem with the soul. It's a problem with the body. 
right? You think about like borderline personality disorder, there's a biological thing going on there. Yes, it's tied up with the emotional life, it's tied up with memories, it's tied up with all of these different things. So it's not, it's not simple. But with something like Alzheimer's, it's the fact that your body has something wrong with it and the soul is not able to use the body in a way that's, that's, that's normal or healthy or functioning correctly. Um, so with any disease, like we think of disease as a problem with our body, with our physical aspect. Now there's a spiritual analogy to that. Um, what's a disease of the soul? What would be, what would be a kind of analogous reality with that? What's, a, what's something that, I'm sorry? Sin. Sin. That's what we call sin. When, when, the, when the soul has something about it that is not working properly, that's generally what we call sin. Even if it's not something that's, that's directly willed, it's a product of our fallen human nature. And in a general kind of way, we can call that sin. It's a product of the original fall. Um, can you think of anybody in your life that you just think of as in despair? Maybe it's you, honestly. Like, I've been, I've been there. You can think of somebody who's maybe struggling with depression. Um, that's a physical thing, that's a biological thing, a chemical thing, we know that from science, but it could also be because they have, it could also be, I'm, I won't, I'll be very careful with how I say this, it could also be associated with a disposition of the soul to fall into despair, right? They feel certain emotions, they don't know what to do with it, they get sadder and sadder and sadder, and then that has a biological effect, right? It could also be the other way around. So I'm just saying, all I'm, all I'm trying to say is the, the body-soul um, connection is very messy. It's very hard. And that's why I want to go over some of these things, because we need to pull those things together. And when we're going through our daily life and trying to live like Christians, and we don't even know what the heck that means or looks like, we're getting we have to be aware that we're getting pulled by our emotion in any number of ways. Um, we could be feeling despair one moment hope the next, hatred the next moment. Like, we can be feeling all these emotions. Is that the sum of who we are? No. You're more than your emotions. What you choose to do with them is very important. But you're more than just the, the physical or the external um, factors of your life. Is that making sense? Any pushback with that? Yeah? Just question. So what is the church say is the best way to help the intellect control these different types of emotions and keep things in check? It, it has, a, yeah, there is. route to do that? That's a great question. So the question was, um, what does the church teach is the best way to integrate the emotions and the passions and the different parts of the soul? That's a huge answer, and that's going to be the, the Christian life in general. But the, I think the fundamental answer is virtue. Virtue is defined as an excellence of the soul, as a perfective power of the soul. So in other words, I have the ability to do mathematical equations, right? If I can do those with ease, at sort of the, you know, just kind of habitually without having to think about it too much. I have a habit of being able to do those things. I don't have to think through it kind of mechanically. 
Um, it comes naturally, it's easy, and I do it correctly. That would be a virtue of my intellect, right? So every single part of our, of our soul has a corresponding perfection. And we don't come into that naturally. We have to work at it. So for instance, um, if you're the kind of person, I tend, tend in this direction very often, I tend to get angry. I'm an irascible person. I'm, I'm a choleric person. I have, I, have very strong, I have a very strong sense of injustice. And when I see an injustice, I want to attack. I want to I tell that person, you just did something that's wrong to me or to, to this person or whatever. There's a, so that in itself is, again, it's not bad. I have that tendency. That's how I'm made. That's how I'm made up. It's, it's the, the, the fact that I'm experiencing anger is telling me something about this situation. It's communicating something about the reality of it. But if I'm just the kind of person that always flies off the handle and starts yelling and throwing a tantrum or something like that, I'm not virtuous. I need the, vir the virtue of, this is what we would call this, meekness. Meekness is a form of a, a, an ability to exercise control over my passion of anger. That's how it's defined. Similarly, if I'm a, the kind of person that has, well, we'll put that aside, we'll say, if I'm the kind of person, which again, I am, that tends towards pride, I need a corresponding virtue to that to temper my self-estimation. I think very highly of myself. Now I need the corresponding virtue of humility to be able to kind of rein that in and put it in perspective. Like, okay, Trevor, maybe you have this particular excellence. Is that because you did it or is it because God gave it to you? Do you actually have it? You've always, you need to have that voice, that corresponding um, excellence in your soul asking you those questions and tempering that that desire for excellence, right? That's what pride is. is an, an, it's a, it's a um, exaggerated desire for excellence. And so you need to have the corresponding virtue. So all that to say, there's an entire understanding and corpus of literature surrounding what are the virtues that we need to be seeking. And you do those, so if I'm a proud SOB, excuse the expression, but if I'm one, just one of those proud, arrogant people that always seems to have the proclivity for proclaiming myself better than everybody else, how am I going to overcome that? I'm going to overcome that by mortifying that desire to tell everybody how excellent I am. And it's going to take time, and it's going to take repetition. But I ultimately, with God's help, will train my soul to stop needing everyone to uh, acknowledge how excellent I am. And that'll just be continual training of the soul. Is this helping? Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I was, I mean, this, we can probably talk about this offline, but I was just thinking, like, if you take that a step deeper, mm -hmm. would something like meditation also help? Totally. Yeah. Bring that in? Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. I feel like, whatever, Hinduism, Buddhism, like, that's probably a bigger thing to help mind over yeah. body. So his, um, the excellent question response is, Yes, that's helpful, but what about things like meditation um, to help sort of rein some of those things in? Um, this is the thing about prayer, and you guys will talk about prayer, I'm sure, with Father Brian. But the thing is that 
this is one of the dangers of, of the whole project that I've been doing tonight is I'm just talking about human like the human human nature kind of in isolation um, I'm just talking about like you could imagine one single person that I'm sort of talking about and saying this are the, this is the these are the various parts of his soul that I'm talking about the fact is that we're always in relation to other persons right and so you never have a person that's just simply experiencing uh, passions, experiencing sadness or hope or joy or anything like that in total isolation. God made us to be in relationship with other persons. That's a fundamental um, understanding of who we are. And it's, it's going to be in Revelation. It's going to be in the creation story. But here's my point with that. Prayer is the best way to get in relationship with God. And so the problem with, um, with meditation practices that are sort of, um, this is the Catholic teaching, this is, this is actually not Trevor talking, this is, this is the way the Catholic Church understands it. The problem with, um, with meditation practices that we often see, I don't even know very much about like yoga, but I've heard you know sometimes there can be some kind of practice in yoga or something like that, is that it's simply, it doesn't go far enough, it's simply kind of emptying yourself it's just kind of emptying your mind of things that could be distracting or something like that. And it leaves out the point that we are meant for God. We are meant for relationship with God himself. And that's kind of how I started off tonight, right? The Lord does talk to us. We have to get to a place where we can actually hear him. He's very subtle. He's a very subtle friend. Um, and that's the, that's the, this, is, this is kind of the rub of Christianity for a lot of people is it's really hard to get to a place where you can hear the Lord's voice. But we have that capacity within us to have a relationship with him. And you're absolutely right that, that it's that relationship with Christ and with the Blessed Trinity that's ultimately going to give us the impetus to ever fight against our, our biggest vices, our biggest tendencies, our biggest flaws. That's what's going to get us there. The fact that we're made for a person, a personal God, not just some kind of abstract idea. That's never going to get us all the way. Okay, we're at eight if you wanted to make up a last minute wrap up or okay. any closing. <laughs> yes. And then this is well, all I'll say. I'll say something at the end. So okay, yeah. sounds good. Um, again, all of this to say that. Your life is extremely complicated. I know that because my life is extremely complicated, right? Um, all of these things that I'm kind of throwing at you are just to help you understand there is, there is wisdom in the church to help me understand things about my experience. And as chaotic as my life might seem at any given moment, there are, there are ways that the Lord wants to integrate me to make me a better more whole person and this is one of the best this is one of the kind of um, selfish in a good way if I can use that express, expression reasons why we need to keep pursuing the Lord is because he actually wants us to be healthy he's not just this kind of God that's always saying you're angry or you experience this or you experience this or you experience brokenness or blah 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 and now I'm angry at you no. he actually does want us to be integrated whole human beings he wants us to be happy. He wants us to be excellent. And so this is just kind of the, the Catholic anthropology is a way of 
kind of tying all those things together so that we can understand ourselves, so that we can learn to live better in a healthier kind of way. That's all I've got. Nice. Okay, so thanks everyone. Thank you again, Trevor, for coming. I think, when did you find out you were gonna do this? Not that long ago. Well, he told me the topic on Saturday night. Yeah, so he threw this together pretty fast. Anyway, um, for those of you online, if your question didn't get answered, I'm going to reply with Trevor and get your question answered online so we didn't forget about you. And then for everyone else, Father Brian is back next week, so it'll be the same thing. If you're here... Good for you guys. <laughs> no, we're going to miss you. But um, it'll be the same process as this, so it's going to just keep moving forward like this, and hopefully eventually we can lift some of the restrictions, but for now we'll just keep going how we are. So um, thank you very much, and we'll see you next week. And just the chairs back in there, too. Okay. Thank you all. We have to respond to these. Yes. And let me, uh, Patrick, you end this. Thank you.